0: The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks.
1: Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. A potentially groundbreaking summit on U.S.-North Korean relations is taking place this week in Hanoi, Vietnam, with President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un meeting for the second time in a year. Will Kim give up key parts of his country's nuclear program in return for U.S. concessions, which could provide a transformative economic boost to North Korea. Joining the crisis next door to discuss the summit is retired Army Colonel David Maxwell, senior fellow with the Foundation for Defensive Democracies. Colonel Maxwell served in Asia for over 20 years, including as a planner for the United Nations Command, Combined Forces Command on the Korean Peninsula. Colonel Maxwell, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door.
2: Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here.
1: Colonel, is there more pressure on Trump or Kim to reach a deal, or is it equally shared?
2: That's a great question. Uh, I I think generally it's equally shared, uh, but for different reasons. Uh, I think uh, President Trump, uh, you know, first and foremost, North Korea is a threat. Uh, You know, we have never resolved uh, the nuclear issue, despite trying uh, very, uh, very hard since 1994. Uh, We've never been able to resolve it. Uh, And, of course, the threat has been growing uh, not only uh, from a nuclear capability, but also for an intercontinental ballistic missile capability that threatens the homeland. So uh, President Trump certainly uh, is under pressure to solve this threat to the homeland, uh, but also threat to our alliance partners, not only South Korea uh, that is under uh, missile and nuclear and conventional threat, and Japan as well. Uh, So he's... He's definitely under pressure to uh, to make things happen. And, of course, domestic political considerations also enter into it. Uh, now, North Korea, Kim Jong-un is certainly under pressure because of uh, the, the strongest sanctions that have ever been imposed and enforced on him. The sanctions are having an effect, despite since the Singapore summit last June uh, and some uh, relief or bypassing of sanctions by China, by Russia, uh, and, of course, North Korea's continued illicit activities uh, designed to bypass the uh, the sanctions. Uh, but the sanctions are having an effect. Kim Jong-un needs resources, needs hard currency, uh, needs access to international markets, uh, and so he really wants sanctions relief. Uh, and so that those are the two... Um, Uh, The two sides to the coin one thing we should keep in mind though President Trump can't unilaterally lift sanctions Uh, Congress US sanctions are imposed by Congress Uh, UN sanctions obviously we have a vote in the UN Security Council uh, And we had unanimous support for the recent sanctions uh, going back to 2017 Uh, But you know sanctions shouldn't be looked at as a bargaining chip or a concession Uh, The sanctions are very clear uh, that North Korea must comply with the requirements to denuclearize, to end the missile threat, end proliferation around the world, uh, end its illicit activities, uh, as well as stop its human rights abuses. Uh, so the sanctions require a lot from the North, uh, and uh, and that's because the North is a rogue state, a pariah state, uh, and that is conducting uh, illegal nuclear activities and illegal actions around the world and causing the horrendous suffering. Of 25 million Koreans living in the north.
1: Speaking of unilateral, Kim has preferred to deal directly with Trump. How big of a deal is that for the process?
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's what he's been doing, and and he really uh, you know for him the stars are lining up both with President Moon in South Korea and President Trump, uh, and it seems obvious uh, and clear that Kim Jong Un thinks he can get a direct deal with President Trump. Uh, and of course, president Trump is the great deal maker. Uh, and so there's some, uh, logic to that. And of course we've seen since Singapore, it really, uh, you know, Kim did not allow working level negotiations to occur, uh, because he apparently thinks he can get that deal from Trump. And so it wasn't until, uh, last, uh, in January, uh, when Kim Jong-un came to Washington and brought with him, the new special representative, the DPRK special representative to the U.S., uh, Kim Hyok Chol, who is now the counterpart to the U.S. special representative to the DPRK, Stephen Began, and they've met twice uh, in Pyongyang and meeting la- beginning last week in Hanoi. Uh, so, working level talks are beginning, uh, but uh, they have not had sufficient time to. Uh, you know, to really work out any details in preparation for a summit. And most likely uh, they have just been preparing uh, the agenda and the talking points uh, and the orchestration of the summit. Uh, So um, it's very important that Kim Jong-un or that President Trump looks Kim Jong-un in the eye and say, you know, from here on out, we have got to have working level negotiations uh, and no further summits until the working level negotiators bring agreements uh to which both leaders must uh, uh must agree
1: is there a fear that Trump could try and strike a deal on his own and and what would that mean
2: Yes well uh you know there's been lots of speculation uh and uh, you know about what might happen uh you know there's talk that he might give a uh, declaration of peace, and of course the White House talking points released last Thursday. Really do play into Kim Jong Un's narrative uh, and, you know, about building trust, establishing peace, and then denuclearization. Uh, You know, in the Singapore summit, you know, it's been the U.S. position denuclearization first, then build trust, and then change the relationship, normalization, and and, uh, lifting of sanctions. Uh, So they're always been at odds. But uh, last week, the White House came out and, you know, and, and said specifically that. President Trump wants peace on the Korean Peninsula, peace throughout the world. Uh, And so what we might see is a declaration of the end of the Korean War. Uh, And, you know, that, of course, is problematic if that is only agreed to between the United States and North Korea, because we must remember that in 1950, North Korea attacked South Korea. Uh, You know, it was a blatant attack of the South. The United Nations... uh, um, Uh, or recognized that the North was the aggressor. And the UN Security Council resolutions, 82, 83, 84, and 85, uh, called on member nations uh, to defend the freedom of South Korea against the aggressor North. Uh, And so we should remember uh, that uh, this was really a, a Korean civil war. The United Nations did not declare war on North Korea. It intervened under the UN authorities. The Chinese did not declare war on South Korea or the U.S., and did not officially enter the war because they only sent the Chinese people's volunteers. Uh, so the war is between North and South. Uh, it was a civil war, uh, and so for the United States and North Korea to declare an end of the war without South Korea uh, is uh, an obvious attempt by North Korea to split the Rock us alliance, which is one of their uh, uh, the key pillars of their strategy, divide and conquer. Divide the Rock us alliance to be able to conquer the ROC. Uh, so um, you know that is one area that uh, uh, that that could be um, a concession made uh, that might not be good. And of course, the, the other part of such a concession is uh, that North Korea, uh, China, Russia, even some in South Korea and the United States uh, would use that as an excuse to uh, uh, to push for the removal of U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula. Um, my worst fear: uh, a deal that could be made is Kim Jong Un would say. I will stop my ICBM program uh, in return for removal of U.S. troops. And, of course, if you've been following the news, uh, the the U.S. and South Korea just concluded an agreement uh, called the Special Measures Agreement on Burden Sharing, in which is the funding by the Korean government, uh, the stationing costs for U.S. troops on the peninsula. Uh, hard-fought negotiations uh, that, you know, failed, did not meet the agreement in time, uh, and, uh, you know, it had to, to go into overtime to be able to uh, ultimately reach agreement, and South Korea agreed to pay another $200 million uh, in addition uh, to the, the $800 million that it already spends uh, to support the cost of U.S. troops, which is over and above the $10 billion that South Korea spent building the largest U.S. military base outside of uh, the United States. Uh, so... Uh, That agreement, you know, if Kim Jong-un says that, you know, South Korea really doesn't want to support U.S. troops, why do you keep them there? I'll give up my ICBM program, which will end the threat to the U.S. homeland if you withdraw the troops. Uh, And that deal could be uh, really catastrophic because the 28,000 U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula uh, are not there to defend South Korea. They are there to deter an attack by North Korea. Uh, And, uh, you know, and if it's in our interest, which I think it is to prevent war, uh, the investment of 28,000 troops uh, to uh, uh, to deter an attack by the north uh, is pretty, pretty uh, good investment, especially because what happens on the Korean peninsula is going to have global effects, at least global economic effects, because the peninsula is at the nexus of uh, the second, third and eighth to 11th largest economies in the world. Uh, two nuclear powers, uh, and, uh, you know, and some of the largest militaries, uh, North Korea, fourth largest in the world, China, uh, Russia, and of course South Korea, uh, and the U.S. presence. So that small peninsula is at the, the nexus of great power competition, uh, and if, uh, if conflict breaks out, it's going to have global effects.
1: North Korea wouldn't even need its nukes for South Korea, Seoul's so close to the demilitarized zone, it could just open up with artillery and rain fire on Seoul. Uh, it, obviously, Kim wants the troops, U.S. troops removed from the peninsula. Do you think that's his number one goal in these negotiations to get the U.S. off the peninsula? Uh,
2: it is certainly one of the most important. I think his near term goal is to have sanctions relief. But what you are articulating is really his strategy uh, his long-term strategy, uh, which is, of course, based on subversion of the ROC political system, coercion of the ROC and the United States, extortion of the ROC, the United States, and international community using provocations uh, to gain political and economic concessions, uh, all of this is designed to drive a wedge between the ROC and U.S. alliance to get US forces off the korea off the korean peninsula to give kim the advantage militarily so that if his subversion coercion uh, and extortion lines of effort don't don't uh, bring unification he has the option to use force to unify the peninsula under northern domination to ensure survival of the kim family regime which is the fundamental vital national interest of north korea survival of the kim family regime and the strategic aim is to unify the peninsula under northern domination to ensure survival. Uh, So that is his strategy. And, of course, the question that we have to ask is, has he given up that strategy, uh, and is he willing to denuclearize in return for uh, economic investment, uh, or is he conducting a political warfare campaign or the long con uh, to uh, use these negotiations uh, to be able to create the conditions uh, that will allow him to execute his strategy and campaign plan uh, that will, of course, be catastrophic.
1: Do you think that it's possible that the U.S. and President Trump could be fooled by this seeming change in Kim's personality over the past couple of years, that it seems a bit warm and fuzzy now, that perhaps this could be part of that con that he's perpetuating?
2: Yes, and I, I think, you know, I can't speak for the president, the president's mind. You know, I can only read his tweets like like everyone else. I do know that uh, his advisors uh, are well aware of the strategy the long con uh, and, and are not about to be duped by, uh, by Kim Jong-un uh, but there are tremendous political pressures uh, and um, you know the president could see opportunities that we don't see uh, and uh, you know and could strike a deal uh, I am uh, somewhat uh, well I am optimistic, uh, that is, as long as the President listens to his advisors, uh we will be okay and uh, but um, you know there's no predicting what uh, you know what the President might do you know behind closed doors uh, in a one on one situation and what he might agree to.
1: You're listening to The Crisis Next Door, and we're talking about the summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un with retired Army Colonel David Maxwell, senior fellow with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. How will we know that North Korea is serious about denuclearization and not just offering up the test site that was blown up last summer or the rocket test stand that was frozen last summer? What steps does Pyongyang need to take? That is great. Great question.
2: Uh, you know, first and foremost, the ideal thing would be for it to declare all of its nuclear, uh, components, nuclear facilities, nuclear weapons, all its locations. Uh, you know, that is probably unlikely. Uh, it looks like what we're going to see is an offer of Yongbyon, the main nuclear facility, with, which has about 70% of its nuclear capability. Uh, you know, apparently, uh, he, he is, is going to offer uh, the dismantling of that. And of course, this will be the third time that we buy it. In 1994, uh, in 2008, they blew up the cooling tower. And 1994 was the agreed framework. Uh, and, uh, and so this would be the third time we buy Yongbyon. But uh, what will, will demonstrate the sincerity of Kim Jong-un's willingness to denuclearize will be if he allows inspectors, international inspectors, present on the ground, to observe and supervise dismantlement uh, and removal of fissile material uh, and, uh, uh, and and rendering those nuclear facilities as irreversibly uh, unusable, and so that that is how we're going to we're going to really see the sincerity. And of course, most all past negotiations have broken down on the verification process. Uh, the North is reluctant. Uh, it does not want to give up information about its capabilities and their locations. Uh, Kim Jong Un apparently told President Moon uh, that if he did that, he would be giving the U.S. a target list for attack, uh, and so that's one, uh, you know, part of his paranoia. Uh, and and um, uh, but in the past. Uh, You know, it has been verification, and he doesn't want to allow uh, a normal arms control regime process where there are inspections, challenge inspections, and permanent uh, uh, deployment of inspectors and technical capabilities to monitor uh, facilities, which they've had uh, some at at Yongbyon in the past. Uh, But, of course, they've reneged on their agreements, and and past negotiations have failed. So we're going to see if third time's a charm. Uh, and uh, you know he may want to do that. Uh, I also think that we need to keep in mind. You know the president has said uh, that all he wants is no testing, uh, and it's been over 400 days since nuclear and ICBM tests. Uh, but we should keep in mind that the lack of testing does not mean there's been any reduction in the threat. Uh, and three times in 2018, Kim Jong Un, Kim Yong Nam, and uh, Ri Yong Ho uh kim jong-un and his his uh his uh prime minister and his uh minister of foreign affairs have said that they perfected their nuclear deterrent and kim jong-un said on january 1st 2018 that they were ready for mass production uh so the lack of testing uh you know maybe because they've completed their program and so we should not be lulled into a false sense of complacency uh because there have not been tests and furthermore uh, they very well could have developed uh, the computer capabilities to conduct simulations uh, which might make uh, or reduce the need for uh, for physical testing of, of capabilities uh, so again uh, there's been no reduction in the threat in the nuclear or missile threat just because there have not has not been testing uh, so uh, that to me is not a demonstration of sincerity. They really must allow inspections challenge inspections uh, and begin the process of turning over fissile material, weapons for uh, rendering safe and moving off the peninsula.
1: Even if Kim provides a declaration of North Korea's facilities, nuclear materials, missile sites, everything, how can that be verified that that's a thorough list and it's not leaving off a few places?
2: Right. Well, that's it's very likely North Korea's masters of denial and deception. Uh, they have some five thousand underground facilities. Uh, in 1999, we inspected an underground facility we saw being constructed uh, in Kumbh Chani, uh and it turned out it was an empty hole. Uh, but it sure appeared to us like they were building some kind of uh, facility uh, related to its nuclear programs. Uh, so they are masters at denial and deception. Um, you know, if they turn over a list, I you know we will assume uh, that it is not complete. We will verify it uh, and, and compare it to our intelligence, you know, what we know. Uh, but, of course, we also have to be careful because our intelligence, uh, you know, in and, and identifying sites that are not on their list, uh, you know, potentially uh, could expose sources and methods. Uh, so we'll be very careful about how we uh, go about challenging uh, the information that they provide us. Uh, and so – um, you know, it is a as a tough intelligence problem uh, to verify the information that they give us. Uh, but again, uh, this has to go back to a commitment to denuclearize and denuclearize the North. Uh, commitment to inspections, uh, and uh, and you know, if in that way, uh, then we will be able to work the verification pro- process uh, and uh, and declaring and determining where all its nuclear facilities and material is located.
1: Colonel, how do you see China's role in these talks? Has it changed since the first Trump-Kim summit? Do you think the trade war with the U.S. will have any impact on China's role in the Korea talks?
2: That's a very complex issue. Um, I think for the most part, uh, the trade issue and the Korea issue has been uh, separate. I think it's important, though, to realize when China looks at North Korea, it doesn't look at North Korea. It sees the United States. Uh, and so relations between uh, or in the Korean Peninsula is really about uh, how China sees the U.S. in Northeast Asia. Uh, now, China has what we call the four no's, or three no's. No war, no regime collapse and instability, and no nukes. So they're a pretty good baseball team because they're batting 600. Uh, but their primary objective there's no instability or regime collapse or war on the peninsula. And, of course, 2017, and Fire and Fury uh, and the potential for military action is probably what drove China to support the sanctions. Not as a way to change North Korean behavior, uh, but to uh, use the sanctions really uh, to show that they're trying uh, to moderate North Korean behavior, but they're really fearful of U.S. military action and what that could do to the peninsula. Uh, North Korea and, and uh, China do not, although they're allies since 1961 uh, they there is really no love lost between them uh, North Korea has always been masterful at playing the great powers off against each other going back to Kim Il-sung and Mao and Stalin in the Korean War uh, so China does not really control North Korea although uh, economically it could strangle the North if it chose to, but again when its prime directive is no war and no instability and collapse, it doesn't want to cut off all, uh, resources to the North. It doesn't want to provide, uh, excessive military aid either because it doesn't want to go to war. Uh, but it is not about to solve the nuclear problem, solve a U.S. national security problem, uh, and, you know, just out of the goodness of their heart. And so we have to look at, uh, at what interests, uh, are, are, are in North Korea, you know, for China in North Korea, and of course, they want to maintain really the status quo.
1: In return for freezing its missile tests, uh the US in return froze its military exercises with South Korea. Do you think China could be benefiting from that?
2: Uh well, in a way, uh you know, they they benefit from uh any weakening of the US military uh and the you know and the relative uh Uh, uh, capabilities of military forces. Now, uh, the the unilateral suspension of of the exercises, uh, you know, took place last summer. That has a readiness impact. However, U.S. and South Korean commanders uh, have taken uh, creative steps to mitigate some of that loss of training to train other ways other than having the large-scale exercises of U.S. Freedom Guardian, Key Resolve, and, and Full Eagle. Uh, they are continuing to train. They're maintaining uh, readiness. Uh, so there has not been a uh, significant decline. Uh, it just becomes harder uh, and requires more creativity uh, and, uh, and and longer times to train. Uh, but the commanders are ensuring that they are maintaining sufficient readiness. The ideal way is to be able to conduct large-scale exercises. And those exercises are computer simulations Uh, That simulate North Korean attack on the south and prepare commanders, their staff, the air component, the ground component, the naval component, the marine component, the special operations component uh, to orchestrate uh, joint and combined operations in the defense of the Republic of Korea. Uh, And so these are not exercises that are hostile to the north, that are a threat to the north. They are based on the realization that North Korea is prepared to attack the South and the combined military force has to be ready to defend.
1: Colonel, if there's no progress from this meeting, what does that mean for this process? And is this process done?
2: Well, you know, it will depend on the leaders, Uh, you know, and and of course, we will see how they spin progress. To me, if there is a commitment to working level talks, uh, then I will be satisfied Uh, if they you know i would like to see a common definition of denuclearization meaning denuclearization of the north uh, rather than the mistaken uh, the mistake made by president moon and president trump to adopt north korea's narrative of denuclearization of the entire korean peninsula uh, and even though there's no nuclear weapons in south korea nor have there been since 1991 north korea looks at the presence of us troops extended deterrence, the nuclear umbrella, not only over South Korea, but Japan as the South being nuclearized. And so the security guarantee that the North wants is an end of the alliance, removal of troops, end of the nuclear umbrella, and extended deterrence, uh, because that is what will ensure uh, security to the North in Kim Jong-un's mind. And so there needs to be a definition of denuclearization of the North, not of the entire Korean peninsula, uh, the commitment to denuclearization should include a framework uh, and a and a timeline uh, for or a roadmap for denuclearization. Uh, a commitment to inspections, uh, but again, most importantly, a commitment to working level negotiations to work out the details. Uh, and uh, and that's really what is necessary uh, to to do that because without the working level negotiations, uh, there will only be talk and rhetoric from. Kim and trump
1: the world waits with bated breath colonel maxwell thank you very much for joining us here on the crisis next door Uh, you're very welcome we've been joined by retired army colonel david maxwell senior fellow with the foundation for defense of democracies thanks for listening to the crisis next door i'm jason brooks till next time
0: the Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com.